Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Galatians, chapter 2. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege that is ours to worship you. Thank you for voices. Thank you for instruments. Thank you for songs. But most of all, thank you for the truths for which we can sing about, the truth of the gospel, your kindness and grace toward us. Thank you for the Spirit of God who dwells within the believer to enable us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Help us to continue to worship you as we open your word in Jesus' name. Amen. A few fun facts for you. Did you know that nutrition professor Mark, and I, don't, I, don't, I hope I say his last name correctly, H-A-U-B, Haub, I don't know, maybe not. May have brutalized his name. Nutritionist professor Mark Haub went on a low-calorie diet of mostly Twinkies, Doritos, and Oreos. And he shed 27 pounds in two months. So, that is a fun fact for you. Another fun fact for you, it is impossible to lick your elbow. All right, it's actually not true. I just wanted to see if anyone was going to try. So, apparently, you can actually lick your elbow. I can't. If you search for the word askew on Google the contents of the page will tilt slightly to the right. True, I actually saw that. Slightly different from a fact, or a fun fact, or a fun fact that someone made up that wasn't true, an axiom, an axiom is a fact that is always true. One example of an axiom is that two straight lines can only intersect at one point. That's true, like, they, that, they make that one point, They'll never, ever intersect again if they're straight. If they intersect again, it's because they're not straight lines. So that's an axiom. There are things in life that are just true. Things that are just true. There may be people who do not agree, do not understand an axiomatic truth, but that does not negate its truthfulness. This morning, as we continue our study of Galatians, we'll continue to meditate on the fact that Paul's gospel message is indisputable, that Paul's gospel message is unchangeable, and Paul's gospel message is divine. These are things that he's laid out for us time and again in our short study thus far. From our study of Galatians 2, 3 through 10, which is our task this morning and our privilege, we will discuss three concepts Three concepts that are always true about the gospel. Three concepts that are always true about the gospel. So, we're going to read the passage, and then we're going to dive right into these truths. Galatians 2, we already read this this morning. I'll read, you follow along in your Bibles, beginning in verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, 
for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The first truthful concept that is always true about the gospel that we want to notice from this passage is this. The gospel does not bring us into bondage. The gospel does not bring us into bondage. If you want to just state it slightly differently to really emphasize the unchanging nature, what you could say is the gospel never brings us into bondage. That is a truth, and this text brings that forth. Beginning in verse 3, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Opponents arise. Opponents arise to the gospel. These opponents would love to add or subtract from the gospel message. They want to twist it, wrangle it, and adapt it. The Bible tells us that that gospel message is always the same. It stays true from beginning to end. From the beginning of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, the gospel has not changed. Uh, there's been more revelation about it as time goes along. We call that the progress of revelation. So God is unveiling more and more truths about the gospel, but the gospel itself is always the same from beginning to end. When someone tries to add to or subtract from the gospel... The reality is the result is a different gospel or a non-gospel. It is not good news at all. Paul portrays these opponents as infiltrators. They've infiltrated the church. They've secretly been brought in to spy out our liberty. They're, they're not forthright in their agenda. They come in and they come in with dangerous, dangerous agendas. Paul's already warned the church at Ephesus at this point, the Ephesian elders, about this type of activity. He wrote in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and following, After my departure, fierce wolves, he actually spoke this and, and Luke wrote it, After my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will, will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Twisting or perverting the gospel, adding to the gospel is, um, is what is at the heart of this section. And particularly, particularly the, the example or illustration is that of circumcision. That's not the topic, though, friends. The topic isn't circumcision. That's just the illustration he's using. The issue at hand is a manipulating or a changing of the gospel, uh, an example of which would be circumcision. But anything that we add to the gospel... Anything that we say, if, if we do this, this activity, if we act this way, if we, if we go in this direction, we can gain God's approval. Anything that has us as the subject of gaining God's approval is a departure from the gospel. 
There is only one way that we gain approval with God, and it is through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That is, unto salvation, in the process of our sanctification, and unto glorification. It's always about Jesus Christ and his finished work that's already done. It's finished. Any departure from that is a deviation, whether it's circumcision, whether it's being a good boy and reading your Bible, or being a good girl and making sure you pray so many minutes a day, anything that you add into the process of the gospel so that you can gain a stature with God is a departure from the gospel. Now, does that mean that a, a believer shouldn't pray or a believer shouldn't read the Bible? That would that be foolish. This is the source of God's revelation. This is God's revelation. We need it. We, we should hunger and thirst after it. As a newborn babe desires, the, uh, desires milk, so we should also desire the pure milk of the word. We need this. But that's not how we gain acceptance with God or God's pleasure. It is always and only through Jesus that we gain that acceptance and that pleasure of God. Twisting the gospel results in several things, and we're going to notice them very briefly from this section of Galatians. First of all, twisting the gospel results in bringing believers into slavery. Look at what it says in verse 4 again. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in, they infiltrated, to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they might bring us into what? Slavery. Twisting the gospel, adding to the gospel, subtracting from the gospel. Any change of the gospel brings us into slavery. That is what it does. It secondly also undermines the gospel. Look at verse 5. To them, we did not yield in submission, even for a moment. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Because twisting the gospel is the opposite of preserving it. It undermines it. It unearths it. So you have this, this solid foundation, and you dig underneath it to unearth it. And, and you make it not a solid footing when you add or subtract to or from the gospel. Thirdly, Twisting the gospel results in not being in step with the gospel. Twisting the gospel means you're not in step with the gospel. Now, we're going to look at this next week, but you'll remember this confrontation. Here, Paul enters into a place, and he sees Peter, and he's, he's over there eating with Gentiles. And then some really important religious people come in, and Peter like does one of those backward walks away from the Gentiles he was hanging with, and he goes off by, off by himself. And you'll remember that, that Paul was not too happy about that. He confronted him to the face. Look at what it says in verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the gospel, the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So here's what's going on. When, when Peter had this, this momentary brain freeze, that's what happened, right? He, he, he allowed his flesh to, to rule him instead of doing what was right and, and ministering the gospel with Gentiles and doing what was perfectly his right to do. He, he felt the pressure of other religious leaders and he stepped out of line, out of line with the gospel. Here we have an apostle. Here we have one of the heads of the church. One of, the, one of the influential ones in the church. And he steps out of line with the gospel. That's, that's, pretty, that's a pretty strong statement. You know what that tells you and I? I also. 
I also can step out of line with the gospel. I can very easily add to and subtract from the gospel if I do not keep as my concentration the reality that the gospel is what brings me to Christ, sustains me in Christ, and will bring me home to Christ. It's the gospel. I can step out of line from that gospel. I need to take that warning. So twisting the gospel is stepping out of line with the gospel. Fourthly, twisting the gospel results in rebuilding what is torn down. It's interesting how he writes this. Look at verse 18. He says, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So to add requirements into my daily walk, to make myself pleasing to God, that God doesn't add in, what I'm doing is I'm rebuilding what Jesus tore down, really, through the gospel. Fifthly, from this little subsection that we're thinking through, twisting the gospel results in nullifying the grace of God. Nullifying the grace of God. Verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Here's, here's what he essentially says. I, I like to try to think of it the same way for my, for, just for consistency. Here God is pouring out grace. He pours out grace. That's his enablement, his ability to to make sure that we're in step with him. He pours out his grace so that we're empowered to do his will, that we're able to meet the requirements of the law as the Spirit works in us. God pours out his grace. And there are times where I say, I'm all set. I'm all set. I know how to do this. Uh, In another version, it's, I do not frustrate the grace of God. In another version, I do not set aside the grace of God. It's almost like you've got this pouring out of grace, and it's like a deflection. No, no, I'm all set. I'm good. Nullifying God's grace. To, to twist the gospel is, is, is really this fundamental. It's this fundamental to our walk with God. It's pretty serious. William Hendrickson wrote a, a really nice paragraph about this. I reflect it to you here. The effort to comply with these demands amounted to a bleeding to climb to God in one's own strength. A tremendous effort to attain salvation by law works, only to discover that this effort is hopeless and that, like the fly in the spider's web, the more one struggles, the more he he also imprisons himself. So you have this picture. The harder we strain in contrast to the gospel, the more we're winding ourselves into a bondage. And that's really what Paul says here, doesn't he? He says, well, Titus wasn't, wasn't compelled, even though he was a Greek and he'd never been circumcised, and he, he's come into this relationship with Jesus, he wasn't compelled to be circumcised because there was a, a, a set of false brethren, they were secretly sent in to spy out our liberty so that it might bring us into bondage to say, hey, circumcision is necessary in the process of your Christian life, and, and following these laws is necessary in the process of the Christian life. But to them we wouldn't yield, not even for a moment, and not, no way, why? Because the gospel is at stake. We will not allow the gospel to be undermined or twisted because the problem with the gospel being undermined or twisted is it's a nullification, really, of that. What is the proper response to those who, like these folks in this context, try to bring the church into bondage? I think it's the same exact response that Paul had. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. No one should ever pressure us to add to the gospel. 
to subtract from the gospel. We cannot kowtow, we cannot cater, we cannot bend our knees to this. You know, the Bible gives us some, some, some very strong passages of scripture about what to do when we face false doctrine. And changing the gospel certainly is that. Let's look at just a few of these passages and we want to do so very quickly so that we're uh, keeping our, ourselves headed toward our celebration of the Lord's Supper. Take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Here Paul writes to Timothy, and in this writing he's letting Timothy know the reason that he had him remain at Ephesus. It was to, to really head off this same type of a problem where there was a mingling of law with the gospel. And he writes, beginning in verse 3 of chapter 1, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may excuse me, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is to love, excuse me, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So you know what he just said? Listen, the reason you're at Ephesus is to make sure that no one distorts the gospel. And the end of this commandment for you to stay at Ephesus is that, that there would be a pure heart. So now, I want us to notice, it's very important for us, there's a, there's a, a strictness to our adherence to the gospel. There's a strictness. In other words, if someone brings something that's contrary, we're not going to say, hey, that's fine. Um, you know, whatever, whatever you know, floats your boat, whatever meets your fancy, I want to make sure that you don't feel offended by my communication to you about your error that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the end of this is that there's purity. Purity. Now, with that, there's also a desire, not just for the protection of the doctrine, but also for the preservation of the false teacher. You want them to hear the gospel in its truthfulness. So we're not only just protecting a doctrine that is of vital importance, we're also needing to counter this person's death sentence that they're putting upon themselves. The false teacher himself needs the gospel in its purity. Take a look at Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. He's speaking about appointing elders in the churches. He gives some qualifications to those that would be appointed, and then one of those has to do with this idea of holding firm to the truth, beginning in verse 9 of Titus 1. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. That's the same type of party going on in Galatians, the same type of party that's going on in Colossians. They're, the, they're religious and they, they want to make sure that, that we do enough, that we do enough to please God. What they're saying is that what Jesus has done is not sufficient. Verse 10, uh, verse 11. They must be, what? Silenced. Since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet, prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That's very flattering. 
This testimony is true. Uh Uh-oh. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. So he tells them there's a rebuke, but what's the reason? Well, there's the preservation of the doctrine. There's the preservation of the truth. There's the preservation of the church. But there's also a rebuke so that they might be sound in the faith, right? So our concern is for the truth, Our concern is for the church and our concern is for the false teacher that they would hear the truth correctly so that they might come to the knowledge of the truth in repentance. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15 that rather speaking the truth, how? In love. Speaking the truth in love. When we speak the truth, there needs to be the necessary grace and mercy that we've received from God that accompanies it. We cannot bend. We cannot bend. We, we must be strong on this. We must have a solid foundation, and we can't cater, but we must still demonstrate the mercy and grace of God in our steadfastness. Why must, must we be steadfast? First of all, it's God's gospel. It's God's gospel, not ours. We have no right to mess with it. It's his. He has ownership. We preserve what he's already revealed. It is validated already. Also, we do this so that the truth of the gospel, back in Galatians chapter one, uh, chapter 2 and verse 5, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, for the church, for the, the church at large and the church specific, right? So the universal church and the local church, all of it is, is in the, the purview of our steadfastness to the gospel. We, we can't cater to it. It's got to be rightly communicated. The gospel is of utmost importance. Okay, it says they came in to spy out our freedom in Christ. So that really makes us have to ask the question, what is our freedom in Christ? And just for the sake of the context of Galatians, it would be any type of external form, any type of external form that someone says is necessary to enhance our relationship with God. To state it differently, External forms are not necessary to enhance our relationship with God. This does not mean, it does not make someone's external form bad. This is one of the things that we have this problem with pendulum swinging, right? We, we, we go from one end or one extreme to the next. And so we think, well, if those people wear suits to church, if they have conservative music or, or traditional music, if, if, they, if they all carry their Bible and it's not in an electronic format, something's got to be wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with having an electronic format in your Bible. There's nothing wrong with having one of these bound Bibles. Guess what? They both possess in their pages the record of God's revelation, whether it's electronic or it's on paper. We get caught up in all kinds of nonsense, making issues out of non-issues. And what, what really we see in this passage is external things are really not it. And so not only should we not say we can't add to the gospel, someone that, that, that lives in a certain way and, and acts in a certain way that is different than yours, maybe they, they think that they have higher standards. We, we, we need to make sure we're not judging them inappropriately, just like we don't want them judging us inappropriately. The reality is the externals are just what? Externals. What do they reveal? I don't know. 
They don't necessarily reveal anything. Someone could have a, a really happy face on and a suit on and have their Bible with them, and, and they could have really been looking at some stuff the night before that really just was pretty despicable, and you wouldn't know the difference whether they did or not. Right? We can hide a lot of stuff. Externals are not the issue. It's the heart. It's the heart. Who here is surrendered to the Spirit? In the surrender of the Spirit, the surrender of our Spirit to the Holy Spirit, in that we have divine power to demonstrate divine fruit. What does divine fruit look like? Well, it's pretty simple to describe. It's not simple to do. In fact, it's impossible to do. It's supernatural. It's called love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and peace and faith. It's all, all the, the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5. God's working through us. That's what happens when the Spirit controls us, and that's not external. It comes to the outside, but it doesn't come to the outside because we will it to happen. It comes because God's Spirit is controlling us. The gospel sets us free from forms and rituals and fleshly endeavors to please God because our relationship with God is a settled, steadfast relationship. And the reason it's a settled, steadfast relationship is because our relationship with him is based not on my inferior, changing work. It's based upon the finished work of Christ. This is why we have confidence in our eternal salvation. This is why we have confidence in the gospel, because it's not based on me. Anytime something's based on me, variables. Anytime something is based upon God, absolute, rock solid, no change, no wavering. God is immutable, which means unchangeable. So the first totally non-changeable truth is that the gospel does not bring us into bondage. Secondly, as we head back to Galatians chapter 2, the gospel is the same for all people. The gospel is the same for all people. In verses 6 through 9, now, we have to try to read and understand what's happening in the first century to understand what Peter, what Paul keeps bringing up, this little, these phrases, they seem... They seem a little abrasive. Do you know what phrases I'm talking about that seem a little abrasive? Verse 6. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. <laughs> you know, if you read it like that, it kind of sounds like he's really good at something up his, you know, he's really upset. He's really upset. Who are these people? I don't really care. They're, they're seeming influential behavior. That's not what he's saying. He's not acting like that, even though it kind of feels like it. The reality is there's an opponent that's, that has arisen, and that opponent is saying, oh, the, the mighty apostles over there in Jerusalem, they have a different message than yours. They have some other things than yours. They, they talk about circumcision and, and, and these law works. And so Paul brings his gospel, as we know is the context, he brings his gospel to Jerusalem, and he lays it out before these super apostles. And he says in verse 6, and from those who, in your mind, seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no, no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential, in your mind, added nothing to me. What he's saying there is not, they didn't add any. 
They didn't add anything to me. They're like peons. He's saying they didn't change the gospel that I laid out before them. Do you understand what he's saying here? He's not saying their, their presentation of the gospel has, has really nothing to it. He says, when I laid out the gospel that I've been preaching to the Gentiles before them, they didn't add anything to it. You're trying to add something, and you're saying these are the influential ones. You think they're all that, and you're telling me to add something to the message. I laid the message out before them, and they didn't add anything to me. It says in verse 7, on the contrary, rather than adding to, to, to my preaching, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel, entrusted means I was given a stewardship, means God gave it to me, I was entrusted with the, the gospel to the uncircumcised just as in the same way Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. There's nothing complicated here, folks. You know what he's saying? The gospel is the same for that one and that one and that one, whether they're Jews or Gentiles, whether they're this race or that race, whether they're smart or not so much, whether they're wealthy or not so much, whether they have great credentials or none, it doesn't make any difference. The gospel is the same. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1, in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, what does it say? To everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The, the, the gospel is the same. If you want to see a, a real condensed record of the gospel, look at 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. We're not going to turn there, but you can take, you know, write it down, look at it later. It's Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. It's very straightforward. There's nothing complicated. It's the same for you. It's the same for me. On April 11, 1911, the RMS Titanic set off on her maiden voyage across the Atlantic. On board were passengers and crew of every social class. The rich were treated to luxury and opulence such as you could find in a five-star hotel. The poor were housed far below deck in small rooms with multiple passengers in each room and little privacy. Such is the manner of class distinction. On April 14, 1911, in a tragedy well-known far and wide, the Titanic struck an iceberg. Five of the ship's watertight compartments were breached, and the ship immediately began to sink. At that moment, every person on board, regardless of social status, had one and the same need find a place on a lifeboat to be saved from the icy waters of the northern Atlantic Ocean. Not two options, not three, but one. One option for everyone. So it is with the gospel. There is not a gospel for the Jew and a gospel for the rest. There's not a gospel for one race and a different gospel for another. There is one gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is for 
everyone. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You know, one of my really joyous passages in Revelation chapter 5, in verses 8 and following, it just portrays how from every tribe and every tongue, every people, every nation, there will be those who are redeemed, not by different ways, but by the blood of the Lamb. There's one gospel. It's for everyone. The Bible says in Acts chapter 16 and verse 31, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's true for you and it's true for your household. It's for everyone. The gospel message is the same regardless. This is one of the, the non-negotiables about the gospel. The gospel never brings us into bondage. It never does. It, it always frees us. So if you find a gospel that is doing something other than freeing you and brings you into, God, in, into bondage, it's not the gospel. The gospel always frees. It never brings into bondage. The gospel also is for everyone. It's for all types, all sizes, all people. There's not a different gospel for different people. A third constant about the gospel. This is, this is beautiful. The gospel always proceeds with accompanying fruit. The gospel always proceeds, it goes forth, and there's fruit that goes along with it. Look at what he says in verse 10. And they asked us to remember, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. You know, when the gospel is portrayed, it's not just in word only. It's word and deed. It's word and deed. We could, we could go on and on about this concept. This could really occupy an entire time of study, whether it be Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night, a good Saturday Bible study. This, this concept could go on and on. The reality is that the gospel always brings with it fruit. It doesn't stop. Someone should never say, yes, I've, I've received the gospel and I'm the same exact person as I was before. I've received the gospel, and I'm all set. There's no impact. So many people have you know, gone, have walked some aisle, they've prayed some prayer, they've read some track leaflet or something, and they've prayed something, and they cling to that, that moment, but there's no demonstration of the fruitfulness that comes from the gospel. And here we were talking about Paul laying out his gospel. He says, hey, everything's the same. We're all good. Just make sure that as you go, as you go from place to place, that people's needs are being met. Word and deed. Remember what it says in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians? He said, when we came to you, we entrusted you, and, and we came not just in word only, but also in power and in demonstration of the Spirit and in much assurance for you know what kind of men we were among you. The next chapter, he talks about the fact that he's, he says, we, we were so desirous of you, we didn't just give you the, the gospel alone, we also laid out our very lives because you were so dear to us. Think about it. it it's not just word and done. 
its word and deed. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, it talks about Jesus laying down his life for us as an example, that we're to lay down our lives for others. And then he talks about, let us not love with word and tongue, but let us love in deed and in truth. If you see someone that has needs and you don't care about them, you, you, you shut up your uh, mercies toward them, the love of God's not dwelling in you. James says it in a different way, and we're not going to get the exact phraseology here, but he says, listen, if I come to you and I demonstrate my faith, and you hold on and say you have faith, but you don't demonstrate anything, mm, something's off a little bit. If someone who is naked and destitute and needing of daily food, and you just say to them, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you don't give them the things that are needed for the body, what does it profit? What does it profit? When we, we come with the word, we also come with action. So let's think about this, folks. There are, there are needy people all around us. We, it's getting more needy now than ever. And I'd say the likelihood is that need is going to grow exponentially, exponentially in these next years. What, what are we going to do? How will we gospel people, portray, in addition to the gospel itself, how will we, we portray the care that God has for those in need? You look through the pages of Scripture, you can see that God cares for the needy. You can see it in his law in the Old Testament. You can see it in the way Jesus dealt with people as he walked on the earth. That demonstration of care for those in need, that is for us, too. We don't just proclaim a message and leave it there. There's a message and accompanying fruitfulness, which is why we have a ministry like the food pantry. We want to make sure that just as God cares for the needy, so gospel people care for the needy. Just like God cares for those in need, so does the church. Here's another thought. This is a, this is a tough one for us. How do you deal with those people on the corners of the streets with the signs? That's tough, isn't it? Does your heart ever break, or do you just immediately start judging? I, I know that guy actually goes home, and he's probably got a Mercedes-Benz in his driveway. Yeah, that's why he's standing out there on a 95-degree day, sweating. There are easier ways to make money than that, don't you think? What goes through your mind when you see that guy or girl holding a sign, help, homeless, need money for food, will work for food, whatever it is, what goes through your mind? I think, folks... We need to take that, that scene and think about what's being said in our text this morning. Only, he told us, make sure you don't neglect the poor, the needy, the hurting, the helpless. What plan do you have so that you can bring someone like that, both the message of the gospel as well as some help? For their body. Well, I just know they're going to go blow it on cigarettes. They're going to go blow it on, on booze. They're going to go blow it on drugs. They're going to go blow it on this thing. Well, okay, so just, just forget about it then. Is that the plan? I don't think that's the plan. There's got to be a better plan than that, don't you think? If God tells us, make sure you don't neglect the poor, there's got to be some other way to deal with it other than just, eh, it'll all work out. It's not the plan, folks. The gospel's consistent. It doesn't change. It doesn't bring us into bondage. 
It's the same for all people. And it proceeds with accompanying fruit, including issues of dealing with those in desperate need as they, they wait for someone to offer them a cold bottle of water on a stinking hot day with humidity while they're standing there in the baking sun. Think about it. We've got to have a plan. It's not a church plan. It's the people of God plan. It's God's people representing him to a person who's hurting. What is your plan? We've got to come up with a plan. The gospel does not change. The gospel is always true. And the concepts of the gospel, and these concepts of the gospel, continue on without interruption. Let's pray together. Father, we need you. We need you so that we might demonstrate who you are in this world of hurting people. Thank you for all you've done, for redeeming us through the precious blood of Jesus Christ, who, as a lamb before his shearers, is silent so he opened not his mouth, and he laid down his life to bear in his own body our sins on the tree. You poured out your wrath on him as our sin sacrifice. He gave his life, and you raised him from the dead, triumphant over sin and Satan and death. You've given us the understanding that it is through Christ and his sacrifice that we have life eternally, that we have sanctification now, and we will have glorification through him, all through his work. We ask that you'd help us to stay steadfast, to share this message, and to embody this message for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.